0: Welcome to Season 2 of the Aging Project Podcast. I'm your host Shelley Craft and together we're here to uncover and explore the secrets to healthy, fabulous, vibrant aging. We've done the research and we've found the best guests ready to help you flourish at any age. So join me as I ask the big questions, your questions, to some of the world's leading authorities in health, wellness and lifestyle think of them as your own support aging mentors a group of experts that are here to make the little changes turn into a big difference for us the aging project was created to help you age well to help us all age well together so welcome to the aging project podcast At The Ageing Project, we've covered so many topics, important topics like movement, meditation, gut health, social drinking, and menopause. Up front, we have made a conscious decision to focus on topics that aren't focused around looks. For so many years we've been fed the anti-ageing marketing message. It's the ultimate tagline, anti-ageing, because we all know that just isn't possible. Companies want to sell us stuff, Uh, they are of course the biggest winners because it means we can never attain the goal of looking younger and we just keep buying more. More creams, more Botox, more whatever they're selling. We look in the mirror and we notice the natural changes that come with getting older. And we want to buy into that endless attempt to achieve this aspirational goal of looking younger or looking good for our age, whatever that means. But I think the tide is turning with many women leading the charge, showing us what it's like to value getting older, accepting and embracing how we look. Of course, we all want to look good and we want to feel our best. But does that necessarily mean looking younger? So, our take on the topic of skin and hair is to find out what works. Do we need to mix up our beauty routine as we get older? What are the latest treatments available? And what about sex? Yes, we are going there too because it is another piece of the ageing well puzzle. So today we are asking a lot of questions. A last message to you who are listening. You're beautiful just the way you are at the age that you are. And it's our generation that can change this unhealthy, anti-ageing, look-younger societal expectation for future generations. It's really up to us, ladies, to lead the charge and embrace getting older and how we look. I've always remembered that quote, people won't remember what you said or how you look, but they will remember how you made them feel. So enough ranting, let's begin. Well, today we are covering some big topics that I know we all want to learn about, including myself, sex, skin, hair. That will be our focus today with Dr. Amy Killen. And my biggest challenge, I believe, is going to be covering all this in the time that Amy has available for us. (laughs) So I will be honest, when it comes to chatting about sex, I might need to adopt an alter ego because this is way outside my social comfort zone. (laughs) Don't fear, ladies, I won't be as conservative as you think I am, because we are going to dive in and ask those questions that you want to know. Of course, skin and hair are also huge topics, so let's drive straight in with Dr. Amy Killen. We are so lucky that we have found someone who is on the cutting edge of sex, skin and hair, along with longevity. Dr. Amy, you are the woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Can we start giving our listeners the short version of who you are and how you came to specialize in skin, hair, sex, and longevity?
1: Yeah, so I'm a medical doctor. Um, I actually was an emergency physician first. That's was my training. I did that for about 10 years, worked in busy emergency departments. And then towards the end of that, became really interested in the idea of preventing illness and preventing a lot of these uh, diseases that, that I was seeing. Um, and then specifically, people started asking me a lot of questions about, well, how do I sort of optimize my skin health and my sexual health um, after I start to kind of prevent all these illnesses. And so I became very interested in skin and hair and sex,
0: even though they don't seem to go together, they actually kind of do. So um, that's what I do now most of the time. So life for you is in Utah. Can you tell us a little bit about what Dr. Amy gets up to outside of work? What, What brings you happiness and joy if there is a downtime for someone as busy as you? There definitely is. So I, I'm married. I have three kids. I have 13 year old twins
1: and, a, and another 12 year old. So I, I hang out with them a lot yeah. and we like to travel. And I also love to do outdoor stuff like hiking and, and just being out in nature. So those are kind of my, my favorites
0: um, when I'm not working. Look, I'm sick of listening to people trying to sell me stuff. So what I really want to know is what do I need to be doing? What's going to work? When do I need to do it? And why? So perhaps we could give people a sense of our health overall when we hit our 40s um, to best understand what does happen with our skin and our hair and, and why our sex life seems to change so much at that time. Well, you know, 40 is an interesting age. In both men and women, we have some some
1: hormonal shifts that start to happen. In men, we start seeing a drop in testosterone. In women, sometimes low testosterone as well as low progesterone. Um, and then in the next 10 years, we also see estrogen go down. And that actually spells a lot of changes in our skin and our hair and our sexual health. And so, you know, if, with women, when we lose estrogen especially, we start to have a lot of thinning of our skin. And that's going to happen after menopause. But even in the years before that, we can start to see some of that Um, And then, you know, loss of estrogen and testosterone in both men and women can really affect sexual health. So the hormonal changes are pretty big. And then, of course, you have everything else that's going on with aging, Um, you know, loss of mitochondrial function and loss of all the, you know, all the things that we kind of talk about, nitric oxide and things like that. And that's also going to affect your skin health, your hair health, your
0: sexual health. So a lot happens after around 40, unfortunately. (laughs) Well, we're learning to embrace it. That's what we're all about here at The Aging Project, is not fearing those changes, but perhaps helping ourselves along the way to make them that little bit easier. And I've got to say that hair loss was one of the biggest indicators for me, that I was actually starting to get older. I'm not going to say old <laughs> anymore. Right. Um, that I guess I've always um, done a lot of blow drying, a lot of treatments, a lot of colour, and my hair held up so well. And more recently now it is, you know, really noticeable that that's changing. So there's things that we can do for our skin and our hair health and our sex life that, as you say, all comes together in one nice little hormonal basket somewhere. Yeah, hormones are a big piece of it. I mean, obviously, lifestyle
1: like your diet, your exercising, your mindset. You know, you're creating creating time for uh, decreasing stress. That's going to all go a big way for to help help your skin, help your hair, help your sex life. And it all play. It's all kind of related. It's hormones. It's cortisol. It's how well you're sleeping. You know, what kind of, what kind of good antioxidants you're eating. So all of those things that we know are healthy that we've been learning. You know, since our grandmothers told us years ago, all of that is going to also help us with our skin our hair and our sex life. Um, And then there are some other things that we can kind of do as well. But that foundational health stuff is actually the most important thing to really embrace uh, initially. And then once you have that, you can start talking about what else I can do.
0: Okay, well, let's start with skin, because most women are looking for the answers for this. It's one of those, as you say, if we can change the outside, surely that's doing some good on the inside as well. And it can be a little bit overwhelming because there is so much choice. But ultimately, it's about, I guess, collagen seems to be the key of everything, no matter what treatment that you're going for, whether it be just cosmetic or clinical, um, topical, it's all about collagen. Is that right? Collagen's a big part of it. So collagen is what gives
1: your skin like the support. So it's the structure of your skin. Um, And then elastin is also important. That's what gives your skin bounce back. So like a rubber band. And that's what we start to lose. We lose both of those starting at about age 25, they start to both go down. Um, So those are both important. And then the third one that's really important is hyaluronic acid. And that one is what gives your skin moisture. And so that's something we also see as we get older, our skin gets more dry. And that's because we lose hyaluronic acid. So those three things, if we can kind of get your body to make more of those things by kind of tricking it into thinking that it needs to, whether that's with skincare products or lasers or microneedling or, you know, injections of PRP, whatever we're doing, we're trying to get your body to make more of those things um, because we stop making them as we get older.
0: Do you have a favorite? I've seen on your Instagram that you've tried, obviously, for your work, pretty much every type of treatment that there is. <laughs> and. Ladies and gents, get on to Amy's Instagram because it is fascinating. If you've ever wondered what these treatments look like, it's, it, she's got a very graphic storyline <laughs> about how these different treatments have worked on your skin. And I say you're so brave because some of those treatments do sound pretty scary, pretty hairy.
1: Yeah, there are some that are more painful than others, for sure. Um, there's some of them that you kind of wish you were asleep for, but you're not, you're still awake. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think that there's, unfortunately, there's not one thing that works for everyone. You know, certain things are better for tightening. Other things are better for, you know, for evening, evening out the pigmentation. Other things are better for pore size. I mean, there's, there's so many different kinds of treatments, but I think pairing some of these different things, like maybe pairing radiofrequency microneedling, which is great for tightening with something that like an IPL, which is really good for evening out pigmentation and evening out skin tone. And then you could add in something that's more regenerative, like PRP or or not or stem cells. You guys can't do those there, I don't think. But PRP or stem cells can be really good for just in improving general skin health. But unfortunately, there's not one thing that works for all people all the time. So it really is kind of figuring out, well, what's good for your skin type, for
0: your age, for your budget, you know, all of those things. Or you could say, fortunately, that you just can't overdo it. Really, can you? As far as those treatments go, you can just try a different one. What every month, just to be sure, <laughs> um, and everything is going to do a little something.
1: You I mean you can definitely overdo it. I think more though with like the fillers and the things like that, where you know you can start to look a little crazy if you get too much filler in your face. But as far as you know, with the lasers and and the microneedling, as long as you're as long as you're kind of giving your skin enough time to heal in between, um, which is usually going to be at least month then um it's
0: it's it's hard to overdo it although it's probably possible
1: i haven't gotten there yet though
0: (laughs) (laughs) prevention is obviously the great place to start with so many of these things and i guess we do a lot of things in our lifestyle there's a lot of lifestyle factors that have a negative impact on our skin can you talk us through some of the big ones
1: yeah, I mean the biggest one for skin is is going to be sun, sun exposure, as you mentioned earlier. You know, it's 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 interesting because sun is actually really good for us in small doses, um, and we know that I mean, we know that from a lot of different studies that it's really important for our general health. However, the sun is also the number one cause of skin aging. Uh, we call it photo aging, and so at least for like the face and the neck and the you know back of the hands, places that are out in the sun more often, wearing a sunblock like a mineral sunblock is, is really, really important um, as a prevention because, you know, the sun actually causes DNA damage in your skin. It causes um, oxidative stress and, and inflammation. And so you don't want to get too much. You definitely don't want to burn, um, but you want to minimize too, much. you know, too much sun is bad, but you do want, you do want some, some, some sun. It's really good for you. Just maybe
0: not on your face and your neck. Mm-hmm. And diet obviously plays a huge part in how our skin is going to look.
1: Yeah, absolutely. A diet, you want a diet high in antioxidants because the antioxidants will help to decrease the oxidative stress that we're getting from the sun and from the toxins in the environment. Um, So, you know, lots of fruits and vegetables. You also want to have good omega-3, high omega-3s, because that's going to be important for skin barrier and keeping the the skin barrier function. Um, And then a lot of, enough protein is important as well for for creating some of the, the structures around the skin. So, you know, a varied diet and maybe minimizing things that are going to be more inflammatory, like minimize. Sugar and trans fats and things like that, because um, inflammation you know anywhere is going to cause problems, and that's true in your skin as well. You know, your skin oftentimes will show you when you're having when you're eating bad things for you, the things that are more inflammatory. You might get you know acne, or you might get eczema, or you might get some kind of rash, and that's your skin saying, hey, hey, let's not let's not do that, let's not eat that. So your skin can help you that way.
0: What does your morning routine look like? What sort of products do you use just on a on a daily basis to get ready for the day? I'll use a, a topical antioxidant cream. So it's going to be a topical,
1: you know, serum or cream with, with like vitamin C, vitamin E, um, maybe resveratrol or inamen. I have some like that that I like a lot. And then I'll usually put a, a sunblock on, which is going to be like a zinc oxide and or titanium dioxide. Um, sunblock. And then um, depending on my time, I might throw on some other kind of skin things. I have some different peptide serums and things like that that I like to experiment with. But the two main ones are the antioxidants and the sunblock. And then that's pretty much it. I mean, you know, I wash my face every day, but I don't have a really, really um, crazy skin regimen. Before bed, I always use a retinoid. um, And then I'll usually use some other kind of antioxidant serum or something else um, as well.
0: So is a retinoid different to retinol?
1: Yeah, retinol is kind of is the over the counter version of a retinoid. Retinoid is kind of the family, and then a retinol is within that. But retinoids are by prescription only, or through physicians only, and they're just a little bit stronger. But it's very similar. They're both vitamin A derivatives, and they both are ex- excellent for helping you know your skin cells turn over and keeping your skin more youthful.
0: Mm-hmm. So, is there like a dosage that we should be looking for if we were just buying it over the counter? Is there like a, a level of milligrams that we can go up to without having to get a prescription? I think retinols will go to about
1: 0.5% and you can get higher with prescriptions. Um, You know, you gotta be a little careful with the stronger ones because it can cause your face to get really dry and like, you know, red and irritated. Um, So you kind of gotta go slowly as you start to use those products, like use them once a week and then twice a week and then, you know, kind of titrate up. Um, And then I usually will give my skin a break too. I'll do kind of break days where like maybe two days a week I just, I don't use any retinoids. I'll just use really calming, you know, peptides or calming um, uh, serums with antioxidants just to kind of give my, my face a break from those things.
0: Coming from the medical side of it, do you try to use more uh, natural products or are you okay with the chemical products? Should we just find a balance somewhere in between? Um, yeah, it's a good, it's a great question.
1: I, I, will, I use both. And I, I think that there's some misinformation about about sort of what natural means um, because a lot of products claim to be natural and they're not necessarily any better or any safer than other um, sort of non-natural products. And, and everything has chemicals. I mean, chemicals are just, you know, it's just the, the ingredients in there. So I, I like to look and make sure that it's it's safe and it's effective first and then if it happens to be more natural that's fantastic but if it doesn't that's okay with me as long as it's safe and effective
0: you can't have it all
1: can you you can't have beautiful skin and not a little bit of something something in the jar Sometimes you have to make a choice. I mean, there are some great products that are, that, are, that are natural and that are effective. And, you know, Young Goose is a line that I like a lot, and they have great products that do
0: both. Um, but sometimes you kind of have to choose. So what about – I've heard you talk a lot about red light therapy. Is this one of your go-tos, one of your, your magic bullets?
1: Yes, I love red light therapy. So, red light therapy is also called photobiomodulation, and it's basically using LED lights or laser lights at a specific um, wavelength. It's usually about 600 to 1,000 nanometers, and you just stand, you know, within about a foot or so of these of these lights. And it, what it does is it increases your um, mitochondrial energy production in your cells. So your inner your cells are able to make more energy, which is great for your skin, and you can see improvements in skin health um, over time, like skin rejuvenation and help with wrinkles and things like that. So I have a, a big panel in my bathroom that every, whenever I'm blow drying my hair, I'll stand in front of it and I'll kind of get a whole body red light treatment and I'll put my face right next to it. So it gets even more of my face, but I've been using red light for years and I think it's, it's super safe. It's really easy and it just kind of makes you feel good. It's kind of a calming, relaxing
0: thing to do. Actually, I've got one of those in the roof of my infrared sauna, but maybe I'm not close enough to it. Maybe I need to stand up when I'm actually doing it, just for my face, leave my face to the side. I have the same thing. And I always wonder that because it is kind of far away. Like
1: once I'm like laying down, that thing is pretty far away. Um, It really depends on how powerful the the bulbs are that you're, you know, from the light. Um, And usually the manufacturer of the device will tell you how close you should be to it and for how long. So, you know, obviously if it's stronger than you can be further away for for less time so it's pretty variable
0: all those masks that we see obviously that's very up close so that would have a a um not as strong what's the word for yeah that yeah like that bulb powerful. would be a little bit gentler yes, <laughs> yes that's true thank really. you that's what i was yes. going for the ones you can
1: get for home the masks they're, they're not going to be quite as powerful as the ones you do like in a doctor's office or you know or the the big body pods that have red light therapy all over um, which are very expensive but it so it, there's a whole spectrum of of these things.
0: <laughs> now let's talk botox. Um I have avoided this so far in my life um but as I'm getting older I'm thinking perhaps the time is coming. I have no judgment either way who uses it who doesn't. I've just always been too scared i suppose um can you talk me through what it actually is what it really does is there an alternative um yeah a little bit about botox because it's it's a question yeah, okay. that i haven't asked many of my friends because i know they use it and i and i don't want to um you know make them feel either way about it i just haven't had the person and you are my person now so yeah botox, absolutely. We well go.
1: first of all you have bangs which is wonderful because you can cover up a lot of the wrinkles that if, if you had any. Absolutely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so um, that's this great. is new as i get older i look yeah more golden no, around things. the front here longer thicker <laughs> um, so botox
1: is it's made from the botulinum toxin and it sounds super scary it's made from a neurotoxin and the way that it works is it's you know it's injected specifically into certain muscles in the face with the goal being to prevent the nerves that supply those muscles from being able to release the substance that causes the muscles to contract so short version of that is it stops the muscles from being able to contract for a period of time. Um, it usually lasts about three to five months most for most people. So it doesn't last forever. It's actually very safe. Um, it is possible that you could get, you know, like your eyebrow could get kind of dropped or kind of heavy looking, or you could have some asymmetry. But the good thing about Botox and so all the is where other. The fear comes in. That doesn't happen very often. It's only about two to 3% of people will get like a, you know, a dropped eyebrow or, or something like that. So as long as you have an injector who knows what they're doing and that you follow your instructions afterwards, it's pretty low risk as far as that goes and very low risk for like serious side effects or serious problems. I mean, people, people don't die from Botox, which is, Really good. Um, it's a good. It's a good, that's a good start. Um, it, it's really- Yeah, fancy. that's lucky, huh? It's very good. It's great for your like forehead lines up here. It's great for the forehead lines right here. And it's really good for the crow's feet lines here. Um, it's not used as much in the lower face, but it, it's helpful in those areas. If it's done properly and it's not overdone and all of that, it can be helpful. So I am like Botox. I think it can be a great tool, but I don't think everyone, you know, has to do it or needs to do it. It's really a personal preference on whether, you know, it's something that you're interested in. Um, there, there aren't really, people always talk about like, you know, that's the new Botox in a bottle or it's the new Botox cream or it's the, you know, this or that. And unfortunately, there aren't really any perfect alternatives to Botox. There is a peptide called Argyralene. I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. Argyralene, which is a topical uh, peptide that's available, at least here in the US. It's, It's in a lot of creams and serums. You guys, I'm sure you have it there as well. But it actually works in a way similar to Botox um, in that it it causes the the nerves not to be able to interact with the muscles as strongly. So it kind of will, it causes a little bit of the same kind of relaxation of the muscles, but it's not nearly as intense as Botox. But you can apply it every day. And over the course of a month or so, you may start to see a little bit less um, wrinkles around those areas. So that's a good thing. To, you, could try, you could try that and see how that works. And then, you know, if you like it, then decide whether you want to go
0: further or not step up Mm. so there is no substitute is what you're really telling me
1: I mean there's there's all the other neurotoxins there's other you know Dysport and ZMN and Juvo and all these other brands but they're all basically the same thing
0: right okay all right I will let you know when I work up the guts to give it a try Perfect. what are the latest skin rejuvenation techniques that you're offering in your clinic uh you mentioned prp which i guess we know as the vampire facial is, is that that one yeah well, um, and stem cells as you say which we can't do here um right. but again i did see you performing one of those treatments and that looks uh that looks heavy duty but obviously there's some great gains to be had there for anti-aging longevity looking younger yeah, stem cells
1: are, are not available everywhere, and there's a lot of um, a lot of regulatory questions with those. But but we use them in skin. We can because we can apply them topically. We could do microneedling first, where you kind of create the little channels all over the skin using a little you know little needles that just go in about two millimeters, and then that allows you to apply things topically to the skin that wouldn't normally otherwise get absorbed. So we can do the microneedling, and then we can apply stem cells or PRP, which the, the PRP comes from the from the patient. The stem cells also come from the, from the same patient. Um, or we can use things like exosomes, which come from like placental tissue, uh, and we can apply them topically and um and they essentially will get absorbed and will increase the person's collagen production and elastin and things like that, but in a very, very natural way. so you don't you don't run the risk of you know, looking like someone else or looking crazy or looking like you had a facelift. It's just kind of like you look a little bit more glowy, a little bit more bright, um, you know, a little bit more fresh, but not crazy, which is what I like about it.
0: A lot of the treatments that we talk about that can happen in a clinic are those penetrating uh, treatments, the ones that get that little bit further down into the skin. So does that mean any creams or gels that are just topical aren't really doing the job? Uh, some of them do a great job. I mean, there are certain things that can get can get absorbed through the skin, but but you
1: have to make sure that the cream or serum or gel can get past the skin barrier. Um, and that's, you know, most of the products that are highly rated and especially the ones that you get through doctor's office do get down through that skin layer, That but not all of them do, you know, some things over the counter, like if you were to buy a over the counter collagen cream, the collagen is not gonna get through your skin barrier. So you're just putting
0: it on the top of your skin and it just sits there. So some things don't get through that skin. And that's the same for uh, your moisturizers, obviously can vary from $300 for a moisturizer down to, just the ones that you do grab in the supermarket for $7.50, is there any huge difference if they're not able to penetrate into the skin? There is a big difference
1: depending on the moisturizer I mean every, everyone's different some of them are made specifically to be able to penetrate further so they use liposomes and other technologies where they can get through the skin but you know it doesn't mean that a seven dollar moisturizer is, is bad it may be really good it may be the same um, it just kind of depends on the brand and and you know what the ingredients are um, a good resource to look to see if the, th- the things that are in your creams or your chemicals that are in your in your creams are self safe is the environmental working group website which you can go to to, and you can look up, you know, kind of what are the more harmful ingredients, whether it's skincare or food, food additives or, you know, various things, but you can look on there and see the types of things that are more dangerous potentially and, and less dangerous. They rate everything based on how dangerous they think it is for human consumption.
0: As far as facial treatments go, Amy, high food is the one thing that I have tried and I do now yearly or, or half yearly. And it seems to be keeping... The wolves at bay, so to speak. Um, I guess high foo, alt therapy, your microdermabrasions. Um, which are your favorites, and which which would be your go tos on or, on a regular basis, just to keep yourself? Yeah, I really
1: like the alt therapy, and I really like the thermage, um, which are two kind of heat based and ultrasound based therapies for prevention, like a you know once a year kind of therapies. Um, and I also like the the BBL treatments at, for an ongoing once a year. That's the broadband light, which can really help to kind of turn back the, the the time in your skin, especially the surface parts of your skin. So those are some of my favorite
0: preventative ones. And if you can see, Amy, everything's working for her. She is 93. This year. <laughs> I wish you a very happy birthday. <laughs> I will. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, I, laser treatments can be very effective. There's all different types of laser treatments. Like a CO2 laser, for instance, is really going to take off an entire layer of skin and you're going to have a long period of healing and they're going to look a little crazy for several weeks, but it can be amazing for transforming your skin. So there's that, which is more invasive. And then you have things like a non-ablative fractional laser um, or a fraxel laser that can be, they're not going to be as, um, as much downtime on those. You won't get quite as much benefit, but they're not as much downtime, but you know, there's laser there's radio frequency there's ultrasound based there's heat based there's so many different types of these machines out there and and honestly the best thing to do is go to a medical provider like a dermatologist or a plastic surgeon or a med spa that has multiple different options and and then talk to them about what your goals are for yourself and they can kind of direct you to the right one because there's not one that's going to work for everyone
0: That's the real advice though isn't it, is going to a medical practitioner as opposed to just a beauty salon and I'm assuming you need to have all sorts of uh, qualifications to even be able to buy or operate these types of machineries. Yes, yeah, so the, the machines that are going to be the higher level
1: machines have to be run by either a physician or in the U.S., like a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant. Like you can't just have an esthetician doing a lot of these lasers. Um, some Some lasers you can. Some lasers are not going to be as intense. So there's so many different levels and types of lasers that are out there. Um, but when you go to a doctor that has multiple different, you know, options available, you can sit down with them and you can create a plan, you know, for the next year, say like where you come in every so often and you do, you know, maybe something less invasive and then maybe every three months, something more invasive. And then, you know, it's a whole plan. So it's not just you just randomly choosing lasers here and there. It's like, how are we, what's the problem and what is our strategic way to address the problem? And then what is our actual plan? And so that's kind of what you want to go for.
0: That's excellent advice, isn't it? You don't really need to shop around in this space. You just need to find someone that you trust and that is going to be able to give you that fabulous plan. You, You start now and it's 12 months down the track. You might actually reach the results that you're after. It is going to take some time. Yeah, you don't have to be an expert at lasers and you shouldn't. I mean, most people are not going to be. You can certainly read about
1: them and be informed, but ultimately, you have to trust the person you're going to to help kind of direct you in the right direction.
0: What about those devices that you can now buy, like your dermal rollers or your rose quartz stones or your gua sha's, whatever they might gua sha, whatever that might be? Yeah. Um, do those do those tools work? I actually do like the derma rollers as long as it's not very deep. I
1: think between 0.25 and 0.5 millimeters is as deep as you should go at home. Um, And you never want to share devices and you have to take care of it and clean it with alcohol and clean your skin with alcohol. And so not everyone is capable of doing all those things um, because you can get an infection if you don't use it properly. But assuming that you can do those things, I, I do like the derma rollers as a way to be able to kind of apply your skincare a little bit deeper like maybe once a week. Um I th- and then some of the other you know the rose quartz rollers and all of those things those can be helpful for lymphatic drainage. So essentially just you know pushing some of the fluid into the lymphatic system and getting it out of your face. Uh I think the, I think those can work great. So there are some tools you can get at home that
0: that actually can be helpful. I know my teenagers use them and they have incredible skills and dexterity with their hands to actually do it, but to me it seems like you need a degree to actually <laughs> Make one
1: work. It's true. There's a lot of a lot of rules on like which directions you can roll and
0: not roll and things like that. That's right. Sounds too dangerous to me. All right, let's get on to hair. Can you tell I'm avoiding the big topic here? I'm just, yeah. just warming up to you, Amy. When fine, does our hair start to change? And what does that look like? What what hair changes are we going to see as we get older? Uh,
1: you know, it depends on the person. Thinning of the hair is is common with age. Um, w- with women, one of the reasons for that is that low thyroid becomes more common as we get old uh, or older, and lower thyroid is oftentimes going to be associated with hair thinning. So that's something that you could do something about. Is you can get your thyroid checked, and if it's low, make sure you take some medication for it, and that can help help prevent thinning of hair. Um, the other thing that can oftentimes cause thinning of hair in women is a low iron. And so making sure that you have enough iron is also really important as well. And then you know stress and all of that can certainly cause it, but even just aging itself can cause the thinning of hair because the blood flow that goes to the scalp is not as good as it used to be and you don't have as much nitric oxide and you don't have as many antioxidants and all of that. For, for men, the thinning can can start, you know, a lot earlier, um, is more common to see like, you know, male pattern baldness and things will typically start in mid 20s to 30, but then it progresses. So by the time you're 40, 45, um, we'll start to see bigger patches of, of hair loss uh, because of that. So it's not necessarily um, only in people over 40, but certainly If you start to have thinning at 30 and it keeps thinning, then by the time you're 40,
0: then you can notice it a lot more. So is it a bit like your skin? Are you saying that expensive shampoos and conditioners might make it feel a little bit better for that day, but they're not actually doing the job? Everything is going to come from within, from your diet and, of course, making sure that all those uh, iron levels and, and vitamins are correct. Um, yes and no.
1: I mean, for certain types of hair loss, it's mostly about you know your lifestyle or your hormones or that kind of thing. But there are some like shampoos and conditioners, um, especially associated with male pattern baldness, that will help to decrease the DHT levels at the hair follicles. And that actually is helpful for, for decreasing um, that type of androgen-associated hair loss, which we see in women as well. We see it in both men and women. So certain shampoos can be helpful, but you have to know what kind of hair loss you have first.
0: Right, okay, so there's not a particular ingredient
1: that we should be looking out for? There's, it really does depend on what kind of hair loss you have. I would say that, you know, there's certain things like rosehip oil, for instance, which can be helpful for hair loss in general. Um, But beyond that, it's really good to know what's causing your hair loss. Um, because the lists of things that cause it, especially in women, is pretty long. The list in men is not quite as
0: long, and then then you decide how you're going to treat it based on what the cause is. How often should we be actually washing our hair? I know my hairdresser tells me that I wash far too often. You know, I don't have a problem
1: with washing. I don't think that washing your hair too much is going to cause you to lose your hair. It may make your hair, you know, more breakable at the ends, or it may make it a little bit drier, or things like that. But it's not going to cause you to develop baldness so I, I wash my hair every day I wouldn't worry about it
0: <laughs> oh great thank you there's a big movement around at the moment about going silver naturally and I will admit some women look absolutely amazing uh, I'm not sure if I'm ready for that yet so is dyeing your hair as we get older causing more damage I mean, dyeing it if you do it too often certainly can cause damage. Uh,
1: pulling it back in ponytails all all the time, like I do every day, can cause some damage around the front and like near the ponytail. Um, but you know, I, I think that it kind of depends on how susceptible you are and how what how what kind of ingredients you're using to dye it. You know, I I used to go when I was in Portland. I went to this salon that used like I don't even know how they use like. All natural ingredients to dye my hair, which I've never heard of since then. Um, but if you can find that, great. Since then, I haven't I haven't found it. Um, as long as you're not doing it more than every you know three months or so, and your health your hair's in good shape, you're probably going to be okay.
0: Are there clinical procedures that we can do for hair loss?
1: Yes, absolutely. So we can do we can do injections of PRP, just like we did for skin. We can do injections of other similar types of things, like amniotic fluid or exosomes or stem cells. Um, we in the clinic will oftentimes use red light therapy for hair as well. We'll do a kind of an intense treatment in the clinic. And then we'll send people home with a red light therapy cap for their hair, which is, which is great for home. Um, and then of course you can also do hair transplants. I don't do those, but if you're a a transplant surgeon, you could do that as well. Um, there's a lot that can be done for hair. It just depends on kind of you know, what you have
0: access to uh, and and what you want to spend to get all that done. It seems like female baldness is becoming a lot more uh, common, I suppose. Is that more stress related? Is that the way our lifestyles are these days? Or is it just something that we're now hearing more about, that women are being a bit more brave about speaking up? There was a lot of increased hair loss
1: with COVID. So the last few years we've started seeing a lot of increased hair loss in men and women that's been related to stress and and you know, whether or not you got sick or not with COVID, but just the stress of the of the world for, for a few years there resulted in hair loss. And what happens is you have the stress and then it takes six months before you start seeing the hair loss. And then usually it goes away eventually, but it's like a year later or or maybe even longer, a year and a half later. So it takes a long time to go away. And I think that there, you know, that's been something that I've seen a lot of people who who has sort of post-COVID hair loss that I expect the hair to come back but it's just taking a long time and it's you know
0: distressing because because it's gone that must be really distressing because unless it was a a significant event it happened six months later you may not actually recall how stressed you were at that particular time but obviously it has had an effect
1: Yeah. And it can have an effect, whether it's a physical stress or just an emotional or mental stress. So, you know, if you got sick and were in the hospital, that's a physical stress and that can cause it. But even if you weren't, even if you were at home and you didn't ever get sick, but you were just, you know, not sleeping and you had a lot of stress, then that can also do it. So um, especially in women, stress-related hair loss is is pretty common.
0: All right. I mean, Let's talk about sex, baby. And I have to say that your work in this area has been so refreshing and and really, really interesting. What are some of the common myths around sex and aging um, and what we can do to change? I think one of the biggest myths, especially in women,
1: is that... If, if, if your sex life isn't good, if you're not enjoying it, if it's not working for you, then you're just stuck with that. Like that you can't do anything about it, that you can't do anything to make things better. Um, you know, with men, we have Viagra. And so whenever men have any kind of problems, they're like, hey, I need, I need some Viagra, or you know, I need a pill. But for for years, women really didn't say much because they didn't feel like they had a lot of options. Like, you know, why why should I complain about it when nothing is gonna happen? So that's I think one of the biggest myths is that that you have to just suffer because there's actually a ton that we can do. You know, you can do on your own we can do it you can do it with a doctor or in a clinic um, to improve your sexual experience men and women and so that's one of the biggest things
0: so is perimenopause and menopause the biggest change um, that would happen for women is this when we're going to sort of notice that our drive isn't what it used to be and what's happening in our bodies when that happens
1: Yes, um, in perimenopause, which is about the 10 years you know before menopause, you see a big drop off in testosterone, which is really important in both men and women for desire, arousal and orgasm. So we need that, we all need testosterone. Um, and then in that same t- time period in women we'll see a, a decrease in progesterone. So we may start to see a decrease in sex drive and sort of enjoyment of sex for women during that time period. Um, but then after menopause, when you also lose estrogen, that's when things get real <laughs> and not necessarily in a good way because estrogen is so important for keeping the vaginal tissue healthy, for giving it moisture, for you know, making sure it's got good blood flow uh, for all of these things. Just like with your skin, your your vag- your vagina needs estrogen. And so when you get to that point where you've lost that, then you know maybe sex becomes painful, or you know, it's it's just definitely not as fun as it used to be. And so you have a lower sex drive because you have less testosterone, and now you also have pain. Sex and like that whole thing makes it not really something that you want to do very often. So your sex drive is really an
0: indicator of your overall health.
1: Yeah, And I think your sex drive is what I mean. The whole thing is an indicator of your overall health. You know, your your sex drive, your your ability to get aroused, orgasm, all of that is is kind of determined by your physical health, but also your mental health and your emotional health and your spiritual health and the environmental health, like what's around you, the toxins and things that are around you, and then your social health, like with your partner. So really all of those kinds of health, those six kinds of health feed in to sexual health, which I think is right there in the middle. And so when we start having problems with sexual health, whether it's desire or arousal or orgasm, whatever it is, You know, we don't want to look just at like the genitalia. We want to look at like what's happening in that sort of circle around um, with with other types of health, like which of those things are causing problems. And it's oftentimes more than one thing. Um, That's why I like, that's why I like sexual health so much because it's not just like you're dealing with one part of your body and you're dealing with the entire person and the entire system around the person, which I think is so interesting.
0: I think what what is interesting, if you've been with a long term partner or you've been married for a long time and you've had kids and you would think that sex is such a huge part of your relationship. But it probably comes the hardest thing to talk about, because when changes do start to happen, it's you don't really know. What it is, I guess if you were having um, new relationships or, or multiple partners, you'd probably be more in touch with things when they change. But I think when you are in a marriage or a relationship that's been long term, perhaps you just sort of blame it on so many other factors going on around rather than having those conversations and being able to talk about it more easily. Yeah.
1: It's so so hard. I have a lot of partners, you know, I'll have a lot of partners. The the husband will come in and and he'll say, I'm having this problem. And I'll say, well, have you talked to your wife? Oh no, no. I haven't talked to my wife about it. Like, you know, he's having erectile dysfunction. And I'm like, well, have you talked to your wife? Oh no, I haven't talked to my wife. I mean, clearly she knows. Right. And the same, the same thing on both, both ways. (laughs) So I think it's so important to talk to our partners, but I think you're right because when it happens kind of slowly over time, um, It's not like a big, a big change. It's a slow change. And all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden we realize we're not having sex. It has been months or whatever. And, um, and so that, that is something that I think is worth kind of paying attention to. If it matters to you, if it doesn't matter to you, that's totally fine. That's not a problem. But if it matters to you, um, there are things that can be done to
0: try to kind of change the change situation. Okay, so what can we do if you're women in your mid 40s, let's start with with them. And you're finding that your sex drive is starting to drop. First of all, of course, you have that conversation with your partner that I'm just not feeling it anymore. Um, Why is that? And what can we do about that at that stage when we're probably in sort of perimenopause heading towards menopause?
1: Well, I mean, get your hormones checked, you know, go go to a doctor. You can get hormones checked with a blood test. We can get you a urinary test, um, saliva even, but I like blood tests. It's a simple test to check all your hormones and see kind of where you are. And if you have a doctor who's familiar with hormones, then depending on the situation, you can get them replaced. You know, you can get testosterone can be added back to you if needed, um, which is, makes a huge difference in women and men. And so that's a good first step. Other things you can obviously do, or just make sure that you're, you're like living healthy you're exercising your, you know, that you feel good about your health and you feel good about yourself. Cause that that's really important as well. Um, the other thing I really think is important is making sure that you're getting enough nitric oxide nitric oxide is the main chemical messenger that tells our blood vessels to go from being kind of small to being bigger to vasodilating. And that's really important for mm-hmm. getting blood into the sexual organ. So, you know, when we talk about um, erectile dysfunction, a lot of that is because of lack of nitric oxide. And while we don't have penises, the clitoris is like a little Small penis, and it also needs nitric oxide. And so, what happens is after the age of 40, we stop making as much nitric oxide. We stop being able to make as much. So, you got to focus on how can I get my nitric oxide up? So it's things like exercising, getting outside in the sun occasionally, not on your face, but on your body, at least getting some sun, maybe doing red light therapy. Like you're talking not
0: about on the your genitals. Is that, why you, is that why you need a bit of you sun? Actually, people, actually, people actually
1: do that. People do that. I don't do that. People do that. Um, there you and, go. <laughs> and then and also eating foods that are high in nitrates. Um, you can actually, that your body can make nitric oxide from food. So things like green leafy vegetables, arugula, spinach, kale, um, beets are very high in nitrates. And so you can, you can eat these really good high nitrate fruits and vegetables. And as long as you haven't killed the bacteria in your mouth with things like uh, antiseptic mouthwash, then your the bacteria can help your body to make nitric oxide, which is kind of amazing. So there's a lot you can do to help increase blood flow, but you
0: have to make kind of a concerted effort to do that. Nitric oxide sounds like something you'd either have at the dentist or a little tank beside your bed that that when you're gearing up, you turn on your nitric oxide. I don't know, like a sleep apnea machine or something that you need.
1: Yeah, the dentist is nitrous oxide, which is very similar, but not quite the same. Happy gas. Same deal, right? Same deal um and then there's some things that we can other things you can do at home like making sure your pelvic floor is strong you know by doing either exercises for that or making sure it's not too tight which is something that can happen as well by seeing a, a physical therapist um and then there are some things like vaginal lasers or vaginal red light therapy that we can do as well you know there's there's tons that we can do but the first step is just saying hey i you know i need some help like getting going to a doctor or a sex therapist or a pelvic floor specialist and saying, Hey, I need some help, that's the very
0: first step. Maybe just being brave enough to have that conversation with your partner to say, look, things have changed, I'm changing, my body's changing, my mind's changing, my skin, my hair, everything's changing. So you just gotta work with me a little bit more for want of a better description. (laughs) So that's our 40s. What happens in our 50s, say post-menopause? Obviously, there's big hormonal changes that happen then. Can you still have an active sex life in your in your 50s and beyond? Yeah, I mean, absolutely.
1: I have patients who are in their 80s who are still there, who are still having sex, and they come, to, they've come to see me, you know, to get a boost. Um, and you know, it's actually funny. There's there's been like a big increase in sexually transmitted infections in like nursing homes and retirement centers at least in the in the u.s i I don't don't, know but lots of like lots of older people are like getting sexually transmitted infections because they've like forgotten how to use condoms because they haven't used them in you know 40 years and now they're they're having sex again Mm -hmm. and they're not being careful so there's
0: (laughs) i think that it's very and there's one promiscuous mister in the in the nursing home there that's spreading some disease there's some (laughs) promiscuity going on oh look out <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so there, obviously again there's topical creams that you can use both or maybe i guess mainly for females is there to to help along the way to make it more enjoyable yeah you can i mean first of all
1: topical estrogen is is if you're not using estrogen otherwise after after menopause i recommend I really recommend doing a vaginal estrogen a few times a week that'll make a huge difference in keeping the the vagina healthy and keeping that, you know, keeping it moisturized, keeping the cells healthy. So it's not painful. It also helps prevent urinary tract infections. It helps keep the pelvic floor muscles strong. So you're not, you know, you're not peeing when you walk too fast or jump or sneeze. Um, so vaginal estrogen is amazing and it doesn't get absorbed very much into your, the rest of your body. So it's, it's safe for almost everyone. So that's a huge I think everyone should be on that, almost everyone. Um, And there are some other topical creams. Um, Sometimes there are things that have um, medications in them that will cause increased blood flow to the area. So you can kind of get some increased blood flow and tingling and things like that. They're kind of more for fun than anything else. They don't really make that big of a difference. We call them scream creams here in the US. Um, but there's but they're still some fun kind of prescription things like that that can help as well.
0: Great. Okay, thank you. And then as you say, in your 70s, you've got patients in the 70s and 80s that still have fantastic sexual active lives. Yeah. How can we guarantee from this point on that we're going to be able to keep that up?
1: I mean it's all you know it's just doing all the things it's staying healthy it's it's putting your health really high up there on your to-do list it's making sure that you're putting your partner on that high list as well and and you know staying um Communicating with them and and staying active, I think that as we all are trying to live longer and to live healthier, healthier, it's important that we also you know have an active, healthy sex life if we want if we want it as we're getting older. And I think it's definitely possible. It's just about how healthy are you, and um, you know, are, are your habits going to support uh, and lead to a healthy sex life or not?
0: Mm-hmm. I've heard you say too that orgasms are a real indicator of health. Why is that? And I guess how many should we have should we be having? And if we're not having any, is there anything that we should be doing for that? We should be having all the orgasms.
1: <laughs> no, I, orgasms are really are really <laughs> beneficial because they you get this release of all of these really, really good. Hormones and neuro and neurotransmitters. So you get, you know, dopamine gets released, which is that kind of exhilaration hormone. You get serotonin, the feel good hormone that makes you feel like really good sense of well being. You get oxytocin, which is like the bonding or love hormone. And then you get endorphins and endocannabinoids. Um, so you have that kind of like runner's high kind of feeling. And so you're kind of you know dosing yourself with all of these really great feel-good hormones when you have an orgasm, whether that's with someone else or by yourself. And so I think it's something that it's underutilized, I think, or at least under-talked about, maybe not underutilized, but it's not talked about that much because people will get a little bit squeamish. But, you know, it's a very, very healthy easy way to kind of dose yourself with some things that are going to help with things you know they can help with anxiety it helps with depression it helps with blood pressure it helps with sleep with pain with you know all kinds of things can be improved just by being sexually active again with yourself or with someone else
0: my god it sounds like the golden ticket it's the
1: golden ticket it's the anti-aging pill that no one's talking about (laughs) there
0: we go there's our headline all right (laughs) (laughs) We've got it. (laughs) That's fantastic. Just the more, the merrier. Yep. I mean, there, you
1: know, I'm sure you can go too far. Certainly people who have, who are going, especially men, we see sometimes men will, you know, have that sort of addictions for lack of a better word to having sex, but it's not something I see that often. And and honestly, most people are, are not, are not at risk for that.
0: Well, it's just an addiction to feeling good, isn't it? And whether that be through um, any other form of whatever makes you feel good, this is a really natural way to go about it. It is. It's very natural, and you know, it's like anything else. If you if what you're if you're doing it so often that you're neglecting
1: other parts of your life, your job, your family, you know, or your body starting to break down, or you know, if things are happening because you're doing it too much, then you should then you should lay off and pull back a little bit. But if that's not happening, um, and it's making you feel good, and the rest of your life is good, then I think that you know I'm all
0: for it. Okay, you've you've mentioned before some. Um trends i suppose for one for of a better word or tools that can help along the way what is it oh shot women is this like a cbd oil which i don't believe we can get cbd oil here in australia without a prescription oh yeah a little bit behind as far yeah. as because if, you know we've spoken to dr lipman um he's mentioned that cbd oil is, is fantastic for so many different things and here we're just being left behind but obviously yeah. if you can get a prescription this can be great for your sex life as well
1: yeah, CBD is is available over the counter here in the U.S. and you can just order it. But there's some there's some great um, CBD can be helpful for. For sex, because it can kind of help calm you a little bit. And so especially if you're anxious, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of times with women, especially we get kind of in our heads, right? We're anxious or we're thinking about our to-do list or, you know, why, who's going to pay, who's going to feed the cat today or whatever. Like we're not, we're not able to like, just like relax. And that's really important for, for sex. And so something like CBD, which you could take orally or even like a topical CBD, like a, like a, um, like a, a cream or an oil, like you mentioned um, that you can use vaginally can be really helpful just for kind of chill us out a little bit which is sometimes all we
0: need just to chill us out okay so here in Australia we'll have to go and see our GP for that but um, that's something you can also look into all right let's chat about some supplements Um, it seems like we're not getting enough of the good things in our diet whether it be because our food has been modified so much we're not eating organic enough um, you know we're not getting those fresh fruit and veggies as much as we can do you have any supplements that you have on the daily that you would recommend
1: so I really like magnesium. I think that that's a great one to take every day before bed. It can help with sleep and most of us are low in magnesium anyway. Vitamin D3 for sure, especially if it's not summer uh, or the sun. Um, I also really like some kind of NAD precursor like NMN or NR or a combination of those two things to help with um, mitochondrial health and cellular health. I um, I started to really like alpha-ketoglutarate, which is something else that's, or AKG. It's It's kind of a it's not new, but it's been talked about more in the longevity circles in the last couple of years um, as well. And I also like in acetylcysteine or NAC, which I don't know if you can get that one there, but that's, that's a glutathione kind of precursor um, that I take most days as well.
0: Okay, so you have all these together in a smoothie or again, do you have some on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays? Do you sort of spread them out or is it easy just to chuck them all in the one blender and go for
1: it? I usually take pills and so I'll just take, you know, I'll take
0: the pills in the morning before I do my day. I'd like to ask about collagen because we have spoken a lot about that, whether it be in creams or whether it is a powder that you're, you're putting in. Can your body actually absorb collagen? So it doesn't actually
1: absorb the whole collagen. The collagen is a big protein. So what your body does is it breaks it into its smaller pieces and absorbs the smaller pieces. But but there is some evidence for collagen for improving skin health, as well as joint health and musculoskeletal health and things like that. So I think it's about 10 grams a day of of collagen that you would take orally is what's been shown to improve skin health. Um, I also like hyaluronic acid taken orally. That's something else. It's another protein that you can take orally it's going to get broken up and then reabsorbed by your body but then your body can then make the hyaluronic acid or the collagen from the amino acids that you're taking in with that so i like collagen 10 grams a day and i like hyaluronic acid about 150 milligrams a day and both both of those are either pills or they can be like a liquid or a powder
0: great and do you have any preference between whether it be beef or animal collagen or marine collagen do you have a preference? No, I don't. I don't. I haven't seen enough evidence that there's a big difference. Great. All right. You mentioned just before um, mouthwash, Listerine, and I've, I've read obviously around the place that this can affect so many things in your life, but it's not often spoken about here, particularly that it could be bad, like really bad for you. A quick pause to thank our major sponsor, youmusttryit.com. You Must Try It is a second home for the Aging Project team. It's come about because we, like many of you, felt overwhelmed with so many wellness products to choose from. So between podcast recordings, we've been on a mission with our in-house wellness guru to bring you the good stuff and only the good stuff. Our favourite brands just tried and tested products we know you'll love products aimed to support you on your journey to age well whether it be our favorite collagen skincare fake tan or organic teas we've got you covered and we would love you to join us so please sign up at youmusttryit.com and of course you'll be the first to hear all the details oh and if you've got a must try product that you love then please get in touch on our socials thanks so much for listening now back to today's episode
1: well, it's not it's not bad in small doses. It's it's people who are using it multiple times a day that we worry because there, there's there are good bacteria that live in your mouth. You know, you have this microbiome everywhere, your mouth, your gut, you know, everywhere, your skin. And the bacteria that live in your mouth, they one of their jobs is to take nitrate from foods, like the nitrate-rich foods we discussed earlier, and turn that nitrate into nitrite, which is sort of the next step into making nitric oxide. And so they've done studies actually with people who use um, Listerine or similar types of mouthwash twice a day, and they've looked at their blood pressure and they've seen that even after just a week of using mouthwash, their blood pressure goes up. And the reason for that is because these people are not able to make nitric oxide from food, which is causing their blood pressure to go up. So nitric oxide has so many benefits. It's not all about sexual health. I mean, I say it is, but it's not. It's also really important for everything from your, your triglycerides to you know, preventing diabetes to you know health of your blood vessels. Like there's so many things nitric oxide does. And so you really don't want to decrease your ability to make it from food, especially if you're over age 40. So I just tell people if you're going to use mouthwash, um like antiseptic mouthwash only use it a few times a week um, and then ideally just use some other type of non-antiseptic meaning it's not going to kill all the bacteria mouthwash
0: right so it's basically that it is damaging your mouth microbiome exactly yeah it's kind of wiping out the, your mouth microbiome okay so gum if you're just doing it for a breath freshener kind of thing you just go back to gum yeah
1: yeah you can do gum you can just also just brush your teeth <laughs> or there are some other like there you go You could do like oil pulling with, you know, with like a, maybe a peppermint or a spearmint or some kind of mint in there as well. There's some, there's some, some some DIY recipes you can, you can make your own mouthwash that are, it's going to help freshen your breath, but it's not going to kill all the bacteria.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. We are ticking lots of things off our list today, Amy. Thank you so much for your time. The next one I want to move on to is obviously weight and metabolism. And I have you heard you say that it's a myth that our metabolism slows with age Is that true? Can I not blame the middle age spread on that anymore? It does slow, but not until about age 60. So
1: our metabolism is pretty stable um, until we hit 60, and then it starts to slowly go down after that. And, and even that it's not a huge reduction, it's, it's relatively slow. So I think that we, sh- we have to look elsewhere. You know, I think it's probably that as we get older, we're not moving as much, or you know, maybe we're eating, we're eating worse food, or maybe we have more stress. Um, you know, there's other reasons, or our hormones are contributing in some other way, but it's not usually the metabolism itself that's the problem.
0: That's just an easy thing to blame, isn't it? All
1: right.
0: (laughs) I will, yes, put that one back in the box, girls. It's not good enough anymore. (laughs) you just got to get up and get moving, as we've been hearing all through the series. Yep. All right. Lastly, Dr. Amy, genetic testing. Do you recommend it? Uh, Why do you recommend it? And which one would you recommend if you did recommend it? Oh, that's a great question. So I have had several different tests done.
1: I am partial to the DNA company test. And I don't have an affiliation with them, but the reason I like that test is because it doesn't just tell you these—you know—these are your different gene types or whatever. It also tells you what that means to you. It kind of—you—they they do this sort of functional genomic testing where they give you reports that say, "Hey, like for me, for instance, like on my report, they told me that I don't make the protein that carries vitamin D." And so I'm someone who can't take like a single dose of vitamin D once a week and be okay. I need vitamin D like mm-hmm. three times a day in smaller increments because I can't carry it around my body. So that's very practical. Like, so I know, okay, well, I, this is how I should mm-hmm. take vitamin D. Um, and I, you know, so they give reports like that. Like it's very practical information that helps you know exactly what kinds of things you should change, what kind of supplements you might need, what kind of hormones you might or might not want to look at based on your DNA. So that, that company is awesome. And I do think that doing some genetic testing can be very valuable if your doctor knows how to use that information, if you know how to use the information, like just doing the testing and then having a report isn't helpful. But having a report and then
0: being able to use that and change what you're doing, I do think is helpful. Right, so are there particular doctors that do work in that area or is this something we can just order through our GP? Um, you can actually order, I believe you can order the MyDNA uh, uh,
1: test or the DNA company test. I think you can order the test on your own. Um, and then certainly there are some, there are a lot of doctors that work with that company as well that can help you interpret it. Or the people who run the test will also do phone consults with you to interpret it.
0: Oh, fantastic. Great. Okay. So that sounds like a goodie. What about hormone testing? Um, how often can you do that? And is that something we should be looking at as well?
1: I think if you're 40 and above, I would at least get a baseline for hormones. And the easiest way to do it is just to do blood testing. And you'd have to go through your doctor for that usually. But um, there are some companies that also do urine testing through the mail. And you may be able to do that, like the Dutch test you could do on your own if that goes to Australia. But I think getting a baseline, even if you just, you feel great, then get a test and see what your baseline is. Like, what are your numbers when you feel great? Because maybe in five years, when you're starting to struggle, you're fatigued or your motivation's down or your sex drive is down, then you can retest and you can look back at your other results and say, okay, what's different? Um, Because my hormones are different than your hormones and, you know, everyone's hormones are different. And so really knowing like, what's what's normal for me, I think is a really important
0: place to start when you're not feeling bad, when you're feeling good. That's interesting isn't it because if you just have it done you don't yeah you can't measure where you were and where you are now when you've made those changes what about measuring your sugar levels is is this becoming a thing it is
1: a thing yeah the continuous uh, glucose monitoring is definitely a thing and I think that that it can it can be helpful in certain people um I don't think everyone necessarily needs to do it I think that you know, if you uh, don't eat a lot of sugar and you're pretty healthy and you you know, all your numbers look good, it's worth doing it for like a month just to see like, is everything actually good every day or is it just the, my my labs once every six months look good? Um, but yeah, I think it's it's very it's very interesting because you get you could see what your glucose is at different times a day and what your insulin is doing. And so the doctors who are really into uh, preventative medicine long term, oftentimes will have patients do this at least for thirty days or so to see kind of um, what are the foods that trigger you, what you know, what kind of things are worse for you.
0: Great, Amy, you have been just a wealth of knowledge today. And for our Aging Project uh, listeners, make sure you do follow Amy on all her platforms. Um, Her Instagram is incredibly entertaining. She is a fabulous -er. TikToker and there's some wonderful, wonderful, valuable information there. Amy, finally, what do you want all women to know?
1: Ooh, I just want women to feel empowered, like to feel like they have control over their health, over how, you know, how they're aging, over their sex life, over their skin, you know, that there's not one right way to do it, but that, that they have the power to decide how they're going to, you know, kind of spend and go about their next five or 10 or 20 or 30 years. It's not up to someone else. It's actually up to each individual woman.
0: And what do you want all of us to do today?
1: I would love for you all to go um, have an orgasm today (laughs) and then get a good night's sleep tonight. I think sleep is super important. So those are my two favorite things, sex and sleep.
0: (laughs) That sounds like a great life to me. (laughs) And how can we stay connected with you, Amy? Where's, Where's the best place to find you?
1: Yeah. Like you said, Instagram, Dr. Amy B. Killen is my Instagram account and I'm pretty active on that. Um, You can always DM me and such on there. And then I have a web, I have several websites, but probably the easiest one to reach is Dr. um, And I can direct you to other websites if you want, you know, procedures or things like that.
0: You are truly awesome. Thank you so much for all your information today and for brightening our day and for giving us a couple of jobs to do. (laughs) You have some jobs. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, didn't we cover some ground? What did you think of Dr Amy? Are you feeling more educated and empowered? I know I am, and I know I say this often, but who knew there was so much to learn about getting older? I did learn a lot today from collagen to red light therapy and orgasms. Yes, I said it. Like always, we love to hear from you, to hear your stories. So please tag us at The Aging Project and tell us what you've taken away from today's conversation and what changes you're making at home. Sharing your stories helps to inspire women in our growing community. We're all in this together. Thank you so much for being here. Until next time, that is a wrap on another guest and another episode of The Aging Project podcast. See you soon. The Aging Project is brought to you by Poly Studio. They're our go-to team for all things podcasting.